These 12 Jesus sent out. These 12. The 12 that are listed in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 to 4. These 12. These special 12 that would later be designated apostles. We see it in verse 2. They, they, Matthew calls them apostles here, but they would be designated as apostles or the sent ones later on. Now, what is the driving force or what is the, the context behind their being sent out? Well, flip just a little bit back to Matthew chapter 9. Jesus was going about all the cities and all the towns and all the villages proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in the synagogues throughout uh, the Jerusalem and the surrounding cities. And not only was he proclaiming the gospel, but he was healing every disease and every affliction. And there comes a moment in verse 36 as the crowds are clamoring around Jesus and thronging to get to Jesus that he looks out at those crowds and he has compassion for them. Do you see that in verse 36? Chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Things haven't changed much in 2,000 years, have they? When we look out at the crowds of this world, the people are still the same. Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Tossed to and fro by the storms of the world. Tossed back and forward. <clears throat> deceived by the enemy held captive to hollow and false philosophies. And look how Jesus, when he looked at those crowds, see how Jesus responded. See the emotional response of Christ to the crowds that were coming to him. It was one of compassion. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he said to his disciples in verse 37... The harvest is plentiful. I mean, the harvest is right before you. It's right here. Look at these crowds, harassed and helpless. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. At this time, there was one laborer, Jesus himself. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, into these crowds that are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so Christ calls on his disciples to pray for laborers. And then in verse 5, it's those very same disciples that are both the answer to their own prayer and the ones that are, as, as the ones that are sent out. And he instructs them to go out into the world and preach the gospel. And Matthew chapter 10 is a discourse about what these disciples can expect as they go out and proclaim the gospel to the world or to these crowds. <clears throat> Matthew 10 is actually the first record of missionary, missionaries being sent out to the people in the fields that are ripe for harvest. And Matthew chapter 10 as a whole is a missionary chapter. And in it, Christ will talk about... <clears throat> who they were sent to go to, what are the consequences that will come as a result of their mission and their ministry. And as you read chapter 10, one of the things we need to note is that this here is the reason for our existence as a people. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning, you have been given a task. You have been given a mission it's the same mission that was given to these 12 on this day to bring the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to the harassed and the helpless crowds filled with lost sinners who wander around like sheep without a shepherd. We the people of Jesus Christ, if you are here this morning and you have heard the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have been tasked, tasked by Jesus with a mission. You have been given a purpose for your short time here on earth for your short time of exile here on earth, for your short time of sojourning here on earth. We as a body of believers and you as individuals that make up this body exist 
First and foremost, yes, to honor and to worship and to glorify and to serve the God of heaven and earth, but we do so primarily by obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. And the great command that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to his church is to go out and to proclaim the gospel. And this mission is repeated over and over and over. It's in every single gospel. It's in the book of Acts also. Take a look at it with me. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. The mission that we are tasked with is located there and stated as follows. It says, And Jesus came to the disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. <clears throat> this is our great mission and task as a church while we are here in the world. In Mark chapter 16, we read, the mission stated as follows, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And in the gospel of Luke, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples and said to them in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 48, he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And in John Jesus said to the disciples, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And as Jesus was ascending into heaven, <clears throat> as he promised the Holy Spirit to the disciples, he instructed them, saying, When the Holy Spirit arrives, you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In every one of these first five books in the New Testament, the mission of the church, our task and our role in this world is explicitly and clearly set out and laid out. Over and over and over again, Jesus clearly reveals his mission to the church to proclaim the good news of the gospel of salvation that is available to all who believe in Jesus Christ. And you and I, we are called to tell people about Jesus. We, you and I, are the earthly representatives and ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You and I are sent to the world to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way that Christ was sent to us. That's what he said in John. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We are commanded to go into the world and proclaim the soothing balm of the gospel to lost sinners in hopes that they too might experience the forgiveness that we have experienced, the release from the terrible grip of sin that we have experienced, freedom from the enslaving power and deception of sin and the devil that we experience. This is why we are here. This is why you are here. This is why we gather. This is our primary purpose on planet Earth. This is the endeavor that we must focus on with dogged and relentless determination. The mission of the gospel, pro proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the main thing. And sometimes I hear people talk about, let's keep the main thing the main thing. That's a common saying, right? Well, the main thing for us is the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. And so we keep the main thing the main thing. However, however, there is a problem. Being the weak, frail, flesh-driven people that we are. Given our proneness to wandering our proneness to self-centeredness, to fear, to anxiety, to defiance, to weakness, to arrogance, and to pride, or maybe it's just me, 
given the ease with which you and I can be deceived by our very own hearts, by the world and the culture that we live in, by the enemy who strategizes to deceive us, because all of these things are conspiring at all times, we must, we must ever and always be on guard. Constantly sitting in the watchtower, shining a spotlight out to ensure that nothing is taking our eyes off the most important mission we have been given with in this world. Always on the lookout for anything and everything that might sidetrack us or distract us from our primary calling as the people of Christ in this world. Know this, distraction is the aim of the devil. And when he can get us, the people of God, tasked by Christ with proclaiming the gospel to the world to do things other than proclaim the gospel to the world, he has achieved his desire. And unless you've been living under a rock for these last two years, or unless you've created some off-the-grid shanty in one of Ontario's numerous, many, and abundantly beautiful forests, no doubt you have identified a number of worldly issues that have in large part began, begun to creep up and become bigger in our minds than the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Issues that have in large part sidetracked us from our reason for being here on earth. Issues that have uh, diverted our attention from the gospel and deflected our energies from the proclamation of the gospel. And so I want you right now to think about your own life for a second. I want you to mull over your own commitment to Christ and the mission that you are called to by Christ and ask yourself, over these last two years, what have you spent the lion's share of your time energy and effort speaking about, proclaiming, and fighting for? Has your speech been focused on the clear, unadulterated proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ? Has it been focused on publishing to those around you the glad tidings of salvation available to them upon trust and faith in Jesus Christ? Has it been focused on the forgiveness of sin, the offer of forgiveness of sin open to them, the gift of eternal life available to them who would turn to Christ in faith? Has it been focused on revealing to people that they are sinners, we are sinners deserving of God's wrath, but good news, Jesus saves, believe in him. Have you been preoccupied with speaking to the wonders of our Savior who, being God Himself, being God come to us in the flesh, who made His dwelling among us, who lived a perfect, sinless life, and then set His face toward Jerusalem where He voluntarily gave Himself up and endured the most torturous punishment the Roman mind could conjure up? Crucifixion. Have you told your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers and your associations, associates why Jesus would do these things? Why would Jesus go to the cross? Why would Jesus take on flesh and make his dwelling among us? Have you told your, the people around you that if you truly believe in Christ, as a result of everything he did, you can be forgiven of your sin? Jesus bore the penalty that rightly belongs to you in himself on that cross. Jesus lived a perfect life which he clothes you with when you believe in him so that the Father, when he looks at you, sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. Have these glad tidings and has this good news or compri comprised the majority of your conversations with those around you over these last two years? If so, keep it up. If not, the question is, why? Why not? Have you been committed to speaking of Christ as our only real hope in life and in death? 
Have you taken seriously the words of the Apostle Paul who said to the Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 20 of his second letter, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us and we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For the sake of him... For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Have your interactions with others been committed to pointing them to the all-surpassing value, the wonderful worth and wonder of Jesus who rose from the dead on the third day? Our precious Savior who 40 days later ascended to the right hand of God the Father and there he sat down because he offered up for, he offered for all time a single sacrifice that is sufficient to forgive every sin of every person who comes to him in faith and trust. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and endured that wrath on behalf of everyone who believes so that they would not have to drink it themselves so that their sins might be forgiven. Have you been heralding the good news of Jesus Christ, the author, the trailblazer, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith? Jesus, our Lord, our King, our Savior, our Sovereign the only one in whom are found perfect peace, perfect comfort, and perfect joy, the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form, the one who will return one day to gather up his people and bring them to the home that he has prepared for them, the one who will return one day to personally condemn to eternal punishment in the fires of hell prepared for the devil and his angels all who reject him and his offer of salvation. How often has this been the content of our speech, the content of our conversation? This Jesus is supposed to be the content of our speech. This Jesus is the foundation for our hope, the primary focus of and reason for our lives on earth. And this Jesus will return one day and we in the here and now are tasked with the mission of proclaiming him to this world. Preparing this world for his arrival. Is this what you've been encouraging the people around you with? Is this what you've been in- exhorting your, the people around you to? Is this the message that the unsaved people around you, if I were to ask them or talk with them, would say characterizes you? Think about that. What's your online presence like? What's your conversations like with the people you come into contact with? Can I just say... If, you're, if you have a Facebook account, or like I like to say, a, an account with these scourges of human communication, and you are tempted to put something online that is possibly offensive, will raise the ire of people, simply to get your opinion across, can I just say to you, stop, do nothing. Instead, open your Bible, put your finger on a verse, and put the verse online instead. I would love to see a lot less uh, Christian online poison and a lot more of God's Word being what characterizes God's people in the sight of this world. And when you're going to converse, converse with somebody and the first thing you're going to try and do is subtly probe for their opinions on the issues that are facing the world today or to subtly ask questions so that you can figure out what their politics are so that you can determine whether or not you're going to continue hanging out with them or continue engaging in relationship with them, stop, say nothing. 
Read John 3.16. Far too often in the conversations, I've been seeing it, and maybe you're seeing it too. Maybe you're experiencing it too, but I've found that when I meet new people now, I can, I can hear it. The subtle questions to figure out where my positions are on the issues of the world. Have you noticed that? Before anything else, they want to know what is your stance on vaccinations and what is your stance on politics and what is your stance on mass and what is your stance on this? And I'm like, I don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about how great he is. He's the hope. He's the reason. He's the goal. Let's talk about him. Has that been you? Are you more interested in, in people's politics and in people's opinions than in the Savior, whether the Savior lives in their hearts? Have arguments over your rights become or overtaken the wonderful truth revealed in John's gospel that we have the greatest right given to us of all, regardless of whether or not the earth strips away any and all of them. John 1.12 is so clear to all who receive Christ, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. That is your right. The only right that cannot be taken from you. The right that will last in this life and into the next. The most important of all rights. Is this what you're talking with everyone around you about? Speaking to them about the wonders of forgiveness? Or has the delight, the wonderful, life-giving, delight-inspiring, hope-bringing good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ been buried under a load of earthly garbage, worldly issues, political stripes, and fights over opinions. We must not allow ourselves to be taken off mission. Because the, we can't look at the world and say, the world is in turmoil and agitated, so I'm going to jump right in and engage in the same conversations and get upset about the same things. No, you and I, if we believe in Christ, are ambassadors to this world sojourners in this world, set apart from this world, and we are called to bring the gospel to it, not to get caught up in its arguments and in its agitations and turmoils. Our great labor in this world is telling them, telling the world about Christ. Our great labor in this world is calling lost sinners home to Christ. And this was Christ's great labor during his earthly ministry. And he prepared and trained a people to carry on this mission after death, after his death, resurrection, and ascension. And as we come to our text this morning, yes, we're going to get to the text this morning. As we come to our text this morning, Matthew here records the very first specifically commanded missionary enterprise. And while some of the instructions given by Christ to the disciples on this day are specific to the disciples on this occasion, they do in many ways look forward to the wider global mission that he left for each and every one of us at the end of Matthew's gospel. And so we see here in this text that the apostles are sent out by Christ. They are dispatched with a specific goal and purpose in mind and to a very specific people. And not only were they sent with a specific goal in mind, Jesus very clearly in verses 5 to 15 authoritatively instructs them in the who, in the what, and in the how of mission. And the first thing we will see is the who. The who. Take a look at five, verses 5 and 6 again with me. It says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but ra go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You see it. The who in this context at this time is specifically the lost sheep of the house 
of Israel. Now, some have wondered why Christ would limit his missionary work to the Jews alone. But based on what we know about Jesus and the Gospels and the rest of Scripture, this actually fits with the tenor and the tone of Scripture. Because as we continue throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you will see that it is clear a worldwide, multi-ethnic, to-the-nations mission is anticipated by Christ. You can see it actually just a chapter before, a couple chapters before, in Matthew 8, verse 11, when he heals the centurion's servant. And in verse 11 of chapter 8, you see Jesus say to those marveling, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus already anticipated a worldwide multinational ministry. And then in the next uh, section, which we'll cover next week in verse 18 of chapter 10, you see this. You will be dragged, as a result of your missionary work, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. For what reason? To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And in, so that is coming. But for now, for this particular sending out of these disciples, their focus is clear and it is limited. And this occurs for a couple of reasons. One spiritual and one practical. The first reason, the spiritual reason, is that throughout Scripture, the Jews are given priority to the gospel or the first hearing of the gospel. And this is a consistent theme in the life of the Apostle Paul, for example. Now, you know the Apostle Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, right? And yet, the Apostle Paul labored very much among the Jews. And you can read it in his letter to the Romans, for example. In Romans chapter 1.16, we read this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And again, in chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, the Apostle Paul writes this, He, God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And Paul, if you read the book of Acts, I want you to note where Paul always goes first when he's breaking gospel ground in a new region. Over and over and over again, the Apostle Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, made it a practice to ensure Jewish priority, or Jew first and also to the Greek. So whenever he went to a new city, he would proclaim the gospel of Jesus in the synagogues or to the Jews first. You see it, for example, in Acts chapter 9, verses 19 to 20. It says, For some days Paul was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. After leaving Damascus, he went to Cyprus. And when he got to Cyprus, Acts 13, 5 tells us, he proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And then when Paul left there and he ended up reaching Corinth for the first time, he started in Corinth by reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, as Acts 18.4 tells us. And when he left Corinth, he arrived in Ephesus, and guess where he started? Synagogues, you got it! For three months, he spoke boldly in the synagogues, reasoning and persuading the Jews about the kingdom of God. It was only after the Jews heard the gospel in a city that Paul would continue on to the Gentiles. And so Paul spent great effort, great labor, and much ministry among the Jews first. They were, at this time, and some contend, some, a lot of commentators that I uh, consulted for this message still contend that the Jews are the first field that ought to be addressed when bringing the gospel to new regions throughout Christian history. Whether you agree with that or not, I'll leave that to you. But Paul said, seemed to say as much when he ministered in Antioch. If you look at Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 42, it's five verses, so you can 
It's a little long. We read, As Paul and Barnabas went out, the people begged that these things, the gospel, might be told them the next Sabbath. And after, meeting, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, and listen to what Paul and Barnabas say, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to the Jews. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So there's, there are theological reasons for, the taking, for taking the good news to the Jews first. Theological reasons for why Jesus sent the disciples to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. But there are also practical reasons. So we learned the, the, the spiritual reason, now we learn the practical reason. You see, Jesus had already ministered to, in Samaria. You remember John chapter 4, he ministered to the woman at the well. John chapter, or in Luke chapter 17, we'll see that Jesus heals a, a Samaritan leper. So it's not that Jesus is forbidding ministry, gospel ministry to any particular group or a group of people. Practically speaking, in this time, the disciples had not received the Holy Spirit yet and therefore were not quite ready to minister to a group with whom old divisions and hot hostilities ran large. You see, the Samaritans were a group of half-Jew, half-Gentile people, ethnically speaking. And to the Jews, the Samaritans were the ones who polluted the worship of the Lord with their idolatry and attempts at syncretism. Syncretism is the practice of trying to combine different religions. So the worship of Yahweh combined with the practices of the pagans. The Jews despised syncretism. The Jews also blamed the Samaritans for opposing their attempts to rebuild the walls and the temple in Jerusalem upon their return from exile. That's an old wound. The Jews also hated the fact that the Samaritans built an alter alternative temple and declared Gerizim, Mount Gerizim, and not Jerusalem to be the only proper place where the Lord might be worshipped. So there existed between these two groups, Samaritans and Jews, a level of hatred, a level of bitterness, a level of animosity that led to grave insults and actually led to active attempts to harm each other. Issues of ethnicity, rivalry, politics, religion, ancient hostilities ran hot and intense. And these disciples had not yet come to the place where their bitterness, their anger, and their hostility over centuries of controversy wouldn't, over, wouldn't impact their witness. They were eventually sent to these regions, right? Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Samaria, but only after the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Only after the Holy Spirit arrives and transforms and renews hearts and eliminates their foolish human prejudice can they go into the regions of Samaria to proclaim the gospel. Now, these are men without the Holy Spirit at this point, you know how hard it is, don't you, to forgive bitterness even with the Holy Spirit in your heart. So this is the who. The message of the gospel is to be brought to the lost sheep of the house of Israel on this occasion. Now we get to the what. What exactly were these disciples to do among the lost sheep of the house of Israel on this occasion. Two things. First, look at verse 7. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Proclaim. 
the first, right? That's the word. And proclaim. Proclaim here means preach the message. Herald the message. Make the message of the gospel known loudly, verbally. Announce it. Express it clearly. Express it boldly in words. A herald, like that word for proclaiming or herald, brings to mind the picture of those old medieval movies or old medieval comic strips where the person would come into the city with a message from the king and would say, Hear ye, hear ye, the message of the king. And they weren't given the right to, uh, to mix up or to change that message. They were simply to open the scroll and read the message to the people with the authority of the king. That's what we, that's what these... These disciples were called to do, to herald the message, to walk into the presence of people, open up the scroll and say, hear ye, hear ye, repent and believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the message they were to proclaim or herald is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is shorthand for bring the gospel of the Lord to Israel. This is the message that they were to bring. This is the message that you are to bring. This is the message that we are to bring. Unadulterated and unencumbered by anything else. Listen to me here. Forget your politics. Forget your causes. Forget your opinions. Leave behind your preferences. Forget any additions that you might be tempted to make to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Simply go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Herald the good news of salvation. There is no room for any of our hobby horses. There is no permission given by Christ to add any of your own viewpoints. You are unrolling the scroll and heralding the message that has been given to you by the king. Tell the people clearly and simply about Jesus. He is the long-awaited Savior of Israel. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the king of the kingdom and his kingdom is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. And as you proclaim the good news, that's the first what, proclaim the good news, you see that there is a second thing that the, the, the disciples are given to do. Buttress the message they are proclaiming by doing good to and for the sinners to whom you preach. You see, Jesus gave the twelve in this context a unique and special authority to heal diseases and afflictions. And Jesus did this for a very particular reason. He made it clear that the disciples are being sent to every sort of Israelite. Not just the rich and the well-to-do, not simply the well-thought-of Israelites, not just the, simply the clean and healthy Israelites. The fact that they are given authority to heal the sick means that they must go to the sick. The fact that they are to raise the dead means that they are going to places where there are dead, places of, where things are unclean. To cleanse the lepers means they must go outside the camp of Israel and minister to the Israelites there. To those who are demon-possessed as well. Meaning, go out into the highways and out into the byways and proclaim the gospel and alleviate people's sufferings as you do. Go to those outside your comfort zones. Go to those outside your normal sphere of life and influence. And on this occasion, the the, they were vested with an authority of Christ that is unique to them. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. While in our day and in our time, the Lord no longer bestows such miraculous gifts to individuals as gifts, he did, the Lord still, at his good pleasure, at his good will and at his good purpose works through the prayers and the labors of his church to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse the leper 
and cast out demons. While none of us individually possesses any such a gift, we are still called, you know, you go to James, are you sick? Go to the elders and they will pray. The Lord still can and does heal at his goodwill and pleasure. But if he doesn't heal, we are still called to buttress the message of the gospel that we proclaim with care and thought for the sick and the downtrodden. We are called to be compassionate to the harassed and the helpless, those lost like sheep without a shepherd. We are called to work for the improvements, work for improvements in their situation and to pray for them and to do good to them while proclaiming the gospel. We must never lose sight of what Jesus says here. It's easy, right, to begin doing good to people and leaving off the proclamation of the gospel. There are a number of ministries who began as gospel proclaimers but saw more results because they saw people being fed. There is no room for that type of thing. We as believers are called to do good to and for sinners and clearly, explicitly proclaim with words, verbally, as heralds, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of these things are instructed to, to us by our Lord. And we are to do so freely, as Jesus said next, right? You see it, you received without paying, verse 8, give without pay. See, in this day there were itinerant Jewish preachers and self-styled healers and many supposed Jewish exorcists exorcists who would go about and put on ostentatious and grand displays of healings and exorcisms and after they had done so they held their hand out expecting payment from those that they had helped and the 12 most likely this is what they had seen in their life you go you help you heal someone you hold out your hand and they give you some some cashish for it however Jesus said here that you, along, you disciples, along with every other person that is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you've received these wonderful gifts from Christ freely. And you are therefore called to dispense them far and wide, generously and freely. See, the disciples hadn't purchased this power to heal. It wasn't inherent to them. It was given to them as a gracious temporary authoritative measure by Christ. They hadn't earned it in any way, and so they were commanded to freely pay it forward. And we sing it, right? Freely, freely, we have received. Freely, freely, give. This is our life as believers. We freely give the message of the gospel, and we freely give of ourselves to help those to whom we witness. We are tasked with paying the wonderful uh, good news of Christ forward, the wonderful generosities of our Savior forward. So the who are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The what is the proclamation of the gospel and buttressing that message by doing good to and for the sinners to whom we preach. And now we get to the how. Now we get to the how starting in verse 9. Here we see Jesus say, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the lab- oh, or a staff in there. Seeing that the disciples are merely sojourners, exiles, and travelers on earth, recognizing that this world is not our home knowing that we have been given a serious and urgent task to accomplish during the short time of our life here on earth, we must, as Jesus is telling his disciples here, learn to travel lightly. We must learn to travel lightly. In order, and in other words, recognize your situation. If you truly love and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are what the Apostle Peter calls in chapter 1, verse 1 of his first letter, an elect exile. Or what he terms in chapter 2, verse 11 of his first letter, a sojourner. Meaning you're, you're temporarily here. You're passing through. This is not your home. 
Instead, we recognize what the Apostle Paul said to the Philippian believers in chapter 3, verse 20 of his letter to them. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, are one to whom the author of the, he- the, the letter to the Hebrews writes this in thirteen fourteen. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So as sojourners, as exiles, in recognition of the fact that we are passers-through on our way to our real and eternal home, during our stay on earth, we are tasked with proclaiming the gospel. If that's the truth, then Jesus tells us here we must avoid weighing ourselves down with numerous earthly possessions. We must avoid being so rooted in the world and so burdened by the pleasures and the cares and the acquisitions of the world that you can't and you won't get up to labor in the fields. Pack and travel lightly while you're here. Pack lightly to ensure that your feet are spry and ready to get moving with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we know, according to Paul in his letter to the Romans, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in one of the great missionary texts, we read, how then will, the, will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? And listen, as it, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. The world needs those feet. They can't be weighed down. They need to be ready to bring the gospel of peace everywhere. But the danger is always before us, right? The more we acquire in this world, the more difficult it becomes to keep from being consumed by our acquisitions. You and I can get so loaded down with gold and silver and copper. Jesus, in, this, in, this, uh, in verse 9, is speaking specifically about money. Along with tunics and sandals and staffs or other earthly possessions that we no longer head out in obedience to proclaim the good news because we are too busy protecting our tunics and protecting our sandals and our staffs and our gold and our silver and our copper. Fear and anxiety begin to take root because we, like the young ruler that came to Jesus and asked, what must I do to be saved, walk away from Christ because we'd rather keep our great possessions than obey our great Lord. Don't ever let protecting gold and silver and worldly possessions keep your feet from being the beautiful feet of those who preach the good news. And so the question for you is, how weighed down by the world's goods are you? Do your possessions and anxiety over your possessions keep you from obeying the Lord's call to be in the fields laboring in the harvest. Because Jesus has already made it clear, right? In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's already made it clear. If you are a follower of his, if you heed his word, do not be anxious about such things. Do not be anxious about what you will eat and what you will drink and what you will wear because the Lord knows that you need these things. Instead, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and he will take care of you. That is a better insurance plan than anything you can buy in this world. The Lord has not led you here to this place. The Lord has not called you to a mission that he will not supply. The Lord's not bringing you out into the wilderness so that you will simply die there without any resources. No, Jesus here is telling his disciples that he is sufficient to meet their every need, that he has promised to take care of them as they go, that Jesus himself is the great resource. And so know this, the God who calls us to obedience in mission is the same God who will provide all the means necessary to accomplish that mission to which he has called us. 
And for the 12, in this context, he said, the laborer deserves his food, meaning that Jesus promised his disciples and anticipated for their anticipated that the disciples' needs would be met and supported by those who came to hear and understand and believe the gospel that they proclaimed. And you will see a much greater version of this when you get to Acts, right? As people are getting saved in droves and they all begin taking care of each other because they're all out on mission and they realize that they need each other to take care of one another. Over the next millennia, the church has kind of fractured and individualized and we're all kind of going out on our own, fearful of whether or not we'll be taken care of or not. That wasn't the case in the early church. Everyone going out on mission, everyone going out to proclaim the gospel knew that if I come across hard times, my saints have my back. It'd be nice to get back to that point. Jesus continued instructing the disciples in verses 11 to 13 where he said this, Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. So find out as you're going and ministering who is worthy in any village that you enter. Meaning, scour Diligently and carefully search out, search for, examine, inquire, and scrutinize to find the worthy. And the worthy in this context are those who will hear and accept the good news of Christ. So as you are going, disciples, and preaching the gospel, pay attention to the responses of the people among whom you are laboring. When you go to the book of Acts, you will see there's always three responses Either people reject and revile. People say, well, we can have a conversation about this. I'll hear you again on this matter. Or they repent and believe the gospel. You can be sure that you will get three, either of these responses. The worthy are those who repent and hear the gospel. When you find one of these, says Jesus, honorable and admirable, hospitable and obedient to the call of the Lord, stay with them until you leave that city or village. See, again... The reason they would stay at the same house is because the religious leaders of the day would go from house to house and lodging to lodging as they found better houses and better lodgings to go to. But the disciples of Christ were not to go begging from house to house. The disciples of Christ were not to leave one place if they thought that some other place was better. The disciples were not consumers searching for the best product. The disciples are servants bringing to the world the gospel of Christ. And this is a message that might do, we might do well to heed in our own day as well. As a disciple, you are not a consumer looking for the best product. The world is all about consumerism. The world is all about leaving this behind if you can find something better. The world is all about make, if, if, if something makes you happier or something makes you more delighted, then you leave this behind and you go to that. And I even start to see it in the church. People are walking around from church to church, leaving good gospel preaching churches because another church has better music or another church has a more vibrant children's ministry or another church has fill in the blanks X, Y, and Z. If that's the reason that you are leaving a good gospel-preaching church, you are wrong. You are doing exactly what Jesus forbade the disciples to do on this occasion. You don't leave one house because you find other lodgings that temporarily suit your fancy a little bit more somewhere else. You are a servant of the Lord tasked with helping the body of believers that you are in grow up into the maturity and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not let consumerism overtake you. Do not be a consumer simply searching for the best product and therefore leaving churches and never, never actually serving in anyone for the benefit of your own soul and the benefit of others' spiritual growth as well. But that's an aside. These disciples were called to be representatives of the Lord, living obediently to and dependent on the Lord. 
And so when they would enter a house that they thought worthy, Jesus said to them, greet it. You see that in verse 12, greet it. This is a common practice in this day, the practice of pronouncing shalom. You've heard that word, right? The Greek or the Hebrew word shalom, meaning to pronounce wholeness and soundness and prosperity and well-being and general health, health upon a house as a blessing. All of which come to a house, peace comes to a house as that house comes to the saving knowledge of Christ. This might be a good practice to reinstitute, right? As we enter a house to pray for the Lord's peace and blessing upon our fellow brothers and sisters' homes when we enter into them. And we see the practice in 1 Samuel 25, verse 6, for example, when David sent 10 young men to the house of that worthless man, Nabal, with the greeting of peace. And they came to the house saying, Peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. And so if the house was worthy and the people accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, they were to let their peace come upon that house. However, if in their labors a house proved unworthy, so if worthy is those who accept and believe the gospel, unworthy would be the opposite, those who reject and revile the gospel. They don't receive, heed, or believe it. Instead, they insult it, they belittle it, and they degrade it. The messenger, the, the messenger or the messenger, Christ said to them in verse 13, let your peace return to you. Now, this can be taken one of two ways, depending on your Bible translation. Either the disciple is to actively retract and take back the blessing as a sign of the household's unworthiness of the blessing of peace. This is how the New American Standard Version translates it. They say it like this, take back your blessing of peace. But here, in the ESV, you see it says, let your peace return to you. It can also mean that the house, simply by its rejection of the good news, proves to be unworthy of the gospel and therefore forfeits the peace that has been offered to it by the gospel. The peace offered, the peace in Christ, peace that is offered in Christ does not rest on the house that rejects Jesus. Belief in Jesus and acceptance of the gospel actually leads to peace among those who trust in him, while rejection leads to an absence of peace. And that's not all. Things get even worse for those who reject the Lord, so the Lord now focuses a little bit on those who decide to reject the offer. And you see it gets worse in verses 14 and 15. Look at what he says in verse 14 and 15. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, don't underestimate the force of these words because by this time, Sodom and Gomorrah became synonymous with. Sodom and Gomorrah were proverbial examples describing that which is both terribly wicked and that which comes under the most spectacular and complete judgment of God. Sodom and Gomorrah remained from the time of Genesis up to the time of Jesus and even up into our own day, an example of sin's consequence. Sodom and Gomorrah were the most wicked cities in all of Scripture, cities that because of their rampant sin met with the terrible and destructive wrath of God. And in the New Testament, you can see both the Apostle Peter and Jude both write of Sodom's example. Peter wrote this in 2 Peter chapter 2. God, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And Jude similarly wrote, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire, by undergoing a spectacular judgment. Now, I want you to hear clearly what Jesus said here. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for this most wicked and heinous land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who hear and respond, than for those who hear and do not respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
the Lord's invitation to, the Lord's offer of salvation, his command to repent and believe and be forgiven, if it is rejected, is followed by the most dreadful, awful, righteous justice and wrath. We live in a world, however, that assumes only great and terribly wicked sins necessitate or bring about the furious judgment and the terrible wrath of the Lord. If the Lord actually does have furious judgment and terrible wrath at all. But Christ makes a clear statement here. Rejection of the gospel is worse than all the sins of Sodom. By rejection of the gospel, souls are eternally ruined. There is no greater sin than spurning the offer of Christ to be forgiven by grace through faith in him. Now, you might sit here this morning or you might be watching online this morning and you might say to yourself, you know, Gino, I just, I, I'm a pretty good person. I don't steal, I don't kill. I'm definitely not as bad as some of the other people that I know. I'm faithful to my spouse. I provide for my family. I work hard at my job. I'm decent. I'm respectable. I'm nice. And that might very well all be true. However, it means nothing when speaking of your eternal destiny. It won't matter how decent you've been if Christ is not your Lord and your Savior. If you refuse his offer of forgiveness, it will be more bearable on the day when you are judged for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for yourself. And for those who reject the message of the gospel proclaimed to them by the disciples, Jesus commanded those same disciples to shake off the dust from your feet in verse 14 as a way of visibly communicating in some symbolic way their state of rebellion and unforgiveness before the Lord. Now you've got to know, this was an act that was usually reserved for Jews against Samaritans or Gentiles. See, when a Jew traveled through a Gentile region or a Samaritan region, they felt this... this this dirt and this dust and this uncleanness and this filth caking all over them as they traveled through those regions. It's kind of like uh, how you feel, you ever been on the Toronto subway or you ever gone to a, an American city and been on the subway and you're touching all the rails and stuff and all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, I don't want to touch my face or my eyes. You know, you, you really got to go wash your hands before you, you do anything. For a Jew, they felt very much this way, but even worse when it came to walking through Gentile and Samaritan territories. And so before re-entering a Jewish territory, they would shake off their shoes, rattle themselves out, get rid of the dust from the Samaritan and Gentile regions as a symbolic way of saying they're dirty and unclean and we're all right. And Jesus here tells his disciples to use that very same gesture towards unbelieving Jews. That's a big deal. It's a visual rebuke that shows or that is a sign that Jews too were unclean and rejected should they rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ and his offer of faith. So in closing... Rejection of Jesus Christ is the most serious of sins and it carries with it the most horrifying and most terrifying of consequences. But there's good news. There is good news. It doesn't have to be that way for you. The Lord Jesus Christ calls you to himself right now. The Lord Jesus Christ sends you out into the world to call others to him right now. He calls us to repent of our sin, to turn from our sin, from our self-centeredness, from our self-idolatry, to turn from it all and to turn to him in faith. He calls you to go out into the world and tell the world to turn from their self-centeredness and turn from their sin and turn to him in faith, to believe that Jesus Christ has come to save you, to call out to him in faith and in trust and that in him, when you truly believe, your sin will be forgiven. 
Believe that he lived a perfect, sinless life. Tell the world. Believe that he suffered and died in your place. And tell the world. Believe that he bore the wrath of God in himself. Wrath that rightly, is to, meant, rightly should fall upon you. But by his grace and mercy, he took it upon himself. And tell the world. Tell others the good news of salvation. This is your mission. This is your reason for being here. This is our reason for existing as a church. This is the reason why every church in every city, in every nation, in every country all across the world exists. This is your primary role. And as you have so freely and wonderfully been given the merciful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you freely go out and give it to the lost, helpless, and harassed sheep who are like sheep without a shepherd in this world. They need you. They need us. They need Christ. Father, we praise you and we love you. We thank you so much for your word which gives us much needed reminders all the time. Lord, it's so easy for us to just retreat into ourselves, to retreat into our fears and our weaknesses and to retreat into our preferences and to retreat into our own heart and into our own mind and forget that there is a whole world of people out there, people for whom you express compassion, people to whom you have called us to go and to teach them to obey all that you've commanded and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would get us out of ourselves, get us out of our self-centeredness, get us out of living in our own minds and expecting everyone to believe what we believe and do what we do and think about the world the way we think about the world and help us to just eliminate all of those additives and all of those extra things we've added to gospel proclamation. Father, we repent of the times when we have made things of more importance in our conversation than Jesus Christ. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us because we can't do it on our own. pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us and fill us and cause us to be Uh, powerhouses for the gospel out in the world. May we reflect the name of Jesus. May we be his ambassadors imploring the world to be reconciled to him. And we praise you and we thank you in his name. Amen.